It's 7.30. Why don't we go ahead and get started? I, uh, I've come to find out that if you don't start on time, it just gets later and later and later and later. So we will always start on time. And we will, you can certainly come and go during the class. I don't get offended. There are restrooms out here in the hall. Um, just if you get a cell phone call, just take it outside. That's all I ask. <laughs> and uh, other than that, I can't think of a thing you could do that would offend me. So would be would be a okay. Was that a challenge? No, <laughs> especially not to you. <laughs> Why don't we start with a prayer this morning? Lord, it is obvious you have a blessing in store for us. It is wonderful to gather together in your name to sit at your feet and to hear what the Spirit says to our hearts. Lord, I ask that you bless the preparation that I've put into this and help me to adequately express the deep truths that you have for us. Lord, I ask that you forgive and help Others forgive my shortcomings and any mistakes that I might make. And Lord, I ask that above all things, that this draw each of us directly into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, people are going to be coming in and out. We'll just have to deal with that as it, as it goes. First thing you need to be aware of is I record every class. That's because the people that are here are just a fraction of the people who are actually participating in the class. It's published out on iTunes as a podcast, as well as all the handouts are available on the website. At, at last, I think as of last night, there were over 100 people following outside of Elgin. So that's pretty, pretty wonderful. But that does mean that your comments are picked up. They are recorded. Occasionally, since it's digital, occasionally I will edit out a section of conversation just because it, the mic didn't pick it up properly or, or it wasn't really germane to the point of the lesson. So don't feel hampered by the fact that it's recorded. If we say anything inappropriate, I'll just edit it. I'll bleep it right out, so not to worry. <laughs> but you do have to be aware that you are being recorded. Um, so by saying anything, you're giving your permission for me to publish it on the web and let everybody else be blessed by any comment you might have. The, everybody should have a welcome page. That gives you my email address. It gives you the website address. If at any time you miss a class, you can just go right out on the web and download it and listen to it right on your computer if you want to keep up. If you lose a handout, you can download and print the handouts. If you need anything, just email me, let me know, and I'll I'll do my best to, to get it to you. There are two study guides listed here on the handout. There, you can order them from Amazon.com or, or your favorite bookstore. And they'll cost you somewhere in the $7.50 range. They are not necessary. They are optional. I recommend using them both together. The K. Arthur study will help you get really un- a personal understanding, kind of get your hands around the, the chapters in Revelation one by one. 
she doesn't give you a lot of, of historical context. So the, the NAV Press, the Life Change series, gives you some facts and information and other scriptural references that I find very helpful. These are solely for your, to enhance your personal study. I will not be saying page two, page three. We're not following them. If you try to make this match up to what I tell you, it's not really going to work. So this is just, if you want it, these are the ones I would recommend using. You can use any ones you want. You'll find that I'm like really into paper. I am a visual person. And so you will just be flooded with handouts in this class. You, I think that the last class, the, the folks said, you know, that they wish they had started out with a three-ring binder because I was just flooding them with paper. So you may find it helpful to have one. I want to start out with this very first handout. And some of you who are in the last class are going to recognize a couple of the handouts and a couple of the scriptures today. There's just not really any way around it. So I ask for your patience. I don't think I introduced myself. I'm Gail Evers, and that's why we have name tags, because I can't remember anybody's name for a while. But, but uh, we're going to look here at this handout. It's called Rules of Interpretation. It's important that you know that I am not the authority on Revelation. God is the authority on Revelation. Now, the best I can do is apply a discipline to my study to try to make sure that anything I tell you and anything we work through in this class is scripturally based. So here's the discipline that I apply, kind of in the order that I apply it. First off, the golden rule of interpretation of prophecy is if when you read it, it makes sense, that's the meaning. Okay? <laughs> and, we don't, and we don't look any deeper than that. If, if, it, if it means what it says, we'll go with that first. The second thing is... If it's a little confusing, you want to look at the context. And the context we look at first is what's immediately before or immediately after the Scripture. Because very often in Scripture, they'll say something confusing and then come right along behind it and explain what it was, you know, a few verses later. If we don't find it there in the immediate context, we'll do a search throughout the rest of Scripture. And this has proved to be really powerful. Thank goodness for computer software, because with my computer, I'm able to do a search throughout all of Scripture on a particular word or phrase or even a concept. And it will pull out for me everywhere else in Scripture that that occurs. And we use that to look and see if we see a pattern or a common interpretation for a word or a phrase. And almost always you do. And then we will apply that to the prophecy that we're working on. The third thing that you need to remember, and this is especially true in Revelation, is just like modern writers, very often in the Bible, the writer will give you a summary of an event and then come right along behind it and tell it again from maybe a different perspective or with different details. And We'll try to point those out so that you don't get confused and think the same thing just happened two times, okay, in the prophecy. So we'll work through those together as we get to them. Another thing that we will use in our interpretation is the actual original language that the Bible was written in. Revelation is the end and summary of the great book. And just like the end of any 
great story. It draws on all the themes of the story that came before it. So you will find as we go through this, you will, we will go back and we will pick up things out of the Old Testament and you'll begin to have a greater appreciation for how the whole scripture really hangs together. Therefore, we will, you'll find that we will be looking at some Hebrew words. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a little Aramaic scattered in. And we will look at some Greek words because that's the, the language the New Testament was written in. And you'll see some of that. All of this stuff that we're talking about, you're going to see in action today. The, the very last thing is the use of symbols. Obviously, if you've read Revelation, you know it is chock full of symbols. Because when you read about it, there are places it doesn't make sense unless it is a symbol. When we get to symbols, we apply the same discipline to those symbols that we did to words and phrases. I am not going to stand up here and guess and give you my opinion about Revelation. I am going to give you what the scripture says about that particular symbol elsewhere. I'm going to give you what the scripture, how the scripture uses a particular word elsewhere. We're going to talk about what conclusions we would draw from that. And, and then I'm going to leave you to draw your own conclusions. Now, by nature, I'm an opinionated person. So I'll probably tell you my opinion. But, that, but I'll tell you that's all it is if I, if I think there's any doubt at all in, in the interpretation. And in Revelation, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of room for interpretation. So, that's any questions so far. We're getting ready to start on verse 1. Okay, Revelation verse 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Here in verses 1 and 2, the important things to kind of think about is who is this message from? If we examine it, it's, where does it start? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So it started with God. God gave it to Jesus. Look who Jesus gave it to. If you read through, God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel. So it went from God to Jesus to the angel of Christ. The angel told it to his bondservant, John, and John was to show it to all the rest of us. Okay? So it really went through quite a chain of, of communication in order to get to us. The word bondservant in Greek is doulos. It's the, it, can, it is translated variously in scripture as slave. That's really what it means. Slave doesn't really communicate to us in our day and age, and so very often your translations will say servant. Bond servant is somebody trying to find, here. this translation I'm reading is the New American Standard Version, and it is trying to find a middle ground saying it's a servant, but it's kind of an indentured servant. <laughs> Any of those interpretations are acceptable. It, it really is just trying to communicate that we belong to God, and it is for us. That this message came. Now, the next controversy that arises in Revelation is which John is this? Scholars love to talk and argue about this kind of thing. 
and I have read what they say. I, I do extensive research in preparing for your class. And I can tell you that overwhelmingly, the historical writers from the first century after this was written, the first hundred years after this was written, overwhelmingly agree that it was John the Apostle. Okay, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. And a couple of the guys who have this in their writings, there's lots of references to this in their writings, but one of them was Melito, who was the bishop of the church at Sardis. The other one was Irenaeus, or Irenaeus who was from Smyrna. Both of those guys are from churches to whom this letter was addressed. So they had reason to know who wrote it, they were the recipients. Okay, or their churches were the, the recipients of this. The opposition to this view claims that it's a different John who wrote it, that it wasn't the apostle. And that whole argument is hung on somebody looking at the differences in the way Greek is used in the two books. And it says, well, the guy who wrote Revelation wrote a different kind of style than the guy who wrote the Gospel of John. So... Eyewitnesses versus literary critique. Let's see, which one do I think? <laughs> I think it was John the Apostle. That is my opinion. I'm going to go with the guys who got the letter. Okay? It doesn't really matter, but that's who I think it is. That's the who. The what is that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' disclosure. The word translated revelation here is apocalypsis. It comes from a root word apocalypto. It means to take off the cover, to disclose. And here I have kind of the first blessing for you. If you look at your first scripture reference on your handout, it's Daniel chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. This was at the very close of the book of Daniel, where Daniel had been given... A, a mini revelation it was he was given revelation kind of in a nutshell and at the very end of, of his visions this is what the angel told Daniel because Daniel is standing there just completely overwhelmed and he says Lord I do not understand what you're trying to tell me and here's what the angel says go your way Daniel for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Now, look, 500 years has passed since this was told to Daniel. Daniel was told to seal up his prophecies. And now John, in his opening statement, says, This is the revelation, the taking off of the cover, the disclosure of Jesus to the, his bondservants for the end times. This is where the prophecy of Daniel will be op- reopened and become meaningful to all of us who are actually needing it and who are living in those times of the end. That's why it's helpful to study Daniel and Revelation together. So as we go through Revelation, we will go back and we will pick out parts of Daniel and talk about them because they have a direct bearing on our understanding of Revelation. Now the how in, in this first sentence is 
how we're going to get this information is by the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and what John sees in his vision. All right. So where doesn't come until verse 9. If you kind of skip down in Revelation to verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I am going to pass around some maps for you. These maps are utterly useless today because Patmos is so small that you can't see it. But they will be useful. And please, if you already have one of these, don't take it. But, but uh, it's the same map you already had. This is a map from the CIA website, CIA.gov. It's a map of the Middle East. And if you look up here where Turkey is, that's what used to be called Asia Minor back in John's time. And if you look, there's a, there's a town marked Denizil, Denizil, Denizli, or Denizli. I think. It's kind of right here in the middle. If you go due west from that town, out into the ocean, there's a you know, pretty fair-sized little island or peninsula sticking right out there due west of Deninsley or whatever it is. If you go south of that about a sixteenth of an inch and put a dot, that's Patmos. <laughs> okay. so that's where it is. The island still exists today. It's very small. It's only about six miles by ten miles. It is gorgeous. It is an absolutely gorgeous place. And um, there are shrines there for, you know, they, they'll show you the cave where John supposedly received this vision and, and, and all. But, but that's where this is happening. It was a penal colony, a Roman penal colony. John had been sent there. Most people think, and he was very old, the... the early historical writers that we were, you know, believing, the, the bishop at Smyrna and, and, Sar and the guy at Sardis, they say that John wrote this at the, near the end of the reign of the emperor Domitian, which would have put it about, Domitian, um, his reign ended in about 8096. So this is placed in 95, AD 95 is pretty much where people think. Now, the other people who go with the literary criticism version, and it might be a different John, you know, there, there's all kind of other dates out there, but the date of AD 95 is the one that's consistent with the, the guys who say the authorship is the Apostle John. So that's, those are the dates I'm telling you. Doesn't really matter, does it? But, but that, just so you know, it was written during the lifetime of the Apostle John. He was the oldest of the apostles. He was the only one, as far as we know, who was not martyred. John actually did not die on the island of Patmos, as I always thought. He actually was allowed to leave and went back to Ephesus, where he later died. We think he died there. The blessing is what comes in, in verse 3. Look at Revelation verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. The word heed in, in Greek is tereo. It means to keep an eye on, to watch for. It doesn't mean that you're paying attention to the word. It means you're in, internalizing the word and you're watching for the events. That's the person this blessing is addressed to. Then we get to the letter proper in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, 
Grace and peace to you. Let's just stop right there. I've got another handout for you. This is an opening of a letter, an epistle. We don't usually think of Revelation as being an epistle like Corinthians and Colossians and all those other letters that Paul wrote. Revelation was intended to be a letter to seven churches in Asia. The handout I'm passing out to you is the first time that you're going to see our work in going back and looking at a word throughout Scripture. When we're going to see, as Linda said one time, well, Revelation is lousy with sevens. It's just running, up, running over with the number seven. So always in prophecy, you'll see a number, you should take it literally. But almost always in prophecy and elsewhere in Scripture, a number also has a significance. It has a context, if you will. And so here I've got a little comparison for you between the number 11 and the number 7 as they're used in Scripture. Just to give, get you the flavor of why this type of study is, is so important. If you skip down to the number um, 11, you'll find, and you can read these handouts at your, at your leisure. I'm telling you everything that's in there, so, so don't feel like I'm skipping stuff. But... but I, this is one of the places where I went through scripture. I pulled everywhere the number 11 appeared. Every single place. Except for Daniel and Revelation. Because that's what we're trying to interpret. I then, and I did the same thing for the number 7. I then went through and just called out the places where it seemed to be just a number. Like I said in Genesis 5 and 6. Seth lived 807 years. Well, he lived 807 years. That's not nothing about the number 7. So the, I... Those are not printed here, okay? Every other scripture, except ones in Daniel and Revelation, are printed here for you. Let's look at the number 11 and begin to see if you see a thread or a context within which that number is used. First off, there's the passage in Genesis that refers to Joseph's 11 brothers who were plotting to kill him. Okay? Then there's a passage in Judges. 16.5, where Delilah is offered 1,100 pieces of silver for betraying Samson. The next one is in Judges 17, where there's a story of a man named Micah who steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. His mother prays, he, he, he confesses, his mother prays over the silver, gives it to the Lord, and then gives it to her son Micah and instructs him to make an idol out of it. A complete abomination to the Lord. Turn the page. Second Kings, the next place, there's only two more places. And it's in Second Kings, two different kings, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, each ruled 11 years. And each of them did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's it. Some total of where 11 is used. You can... You get a very clear sense of evil, right, associated with that number. Now, let's just compare and contrast that to the number seven, which is the the number that's used frequently throughout Scripture and in Revelation. First thing that comes to mind, the creation, seventh day, God blessed that day, and and we rested, and he rested. It was the completion of creation. Genesis 4 talks about when Cain was sent out after murdering his brother Abel 
God placed a mark on Cain and said anybody who touches Cain and takes vengeance on Cain, even though he's a murderer, I, the Lord, will visit vengeance on him sevenfold. Okay? So it's, it's, it's the Lord is going to come and, and do a work of vengeance if you touch Cain. The next one is in the story of the ark. God wanted seven pairs of clean animals, seven pairs of birds of the sky. And after it took seven days to load the ark, then the rain came. So again, you begin to see a picture of completeness. God was going to start all of animals, birds, all of these animals were going to start over again just from the base of seven. Okay, that was enough for God to complete his new work. I skipped down to the bottom of the page. Exodus 12, the time, it was the amount of time that was required to complete the observance of the Passover. Next page. Second box, Exodus 16. The seventh day, on the seventh day, Israelites were not to gather manna. See, manna would rain down on them for six days, but on the sixth day, God would send a double portion. <coughs> Such a great phrase, a double portion. And they were to gather up that double portion, and it would keep overnight. Now, if they tried that any other night, it would spoil. But that night, and only that sixth night, it would not spoil, so that the seventh day would remain holy. Very important to the Lord. And that was reiterated many, many, many times in Scripture. Exodus 20 is, a, is an example where the Lord said, keep that seventh day holy. And this, as, as we found in some of our earlier studies, when the Israelites didn't do that, it became a real point between them and the Lord. And he actually sent them into exile for that. that he, the period, they, there was a lot of other sin they went into exile for, but the length of their exile was determined by how many Sabbath years they had skipped. Very interesting. Skip down another couple to Exodus 29:37. It's the number of days required to make the altar holy to the Lord. The next one, it's the, in Leviticus, it was the number of times, seven times, blood had to be sprinkled before the Lord in atonement for the sin of a priest. It was the number, the next one, the number of times the utensils of the altar had to be sprinkled with oil to consecrate them. In 2 Kings, it was the number of times a leper had to be washed to be cleansed. You're beginning to see, as we go through this, continue to turn the page, that this is the amount, the number within which God accomplishes his holy work, a complete and holy work. Kind of the third box down, Isaiah 30. On the day that the Lord heals his people, this is the day of the Lord, and we're going to study a lot about it in Revelation. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. The light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days. On the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. And then drop all the way down to the bottom of the page. Elijah This is a story about Elijah recorded in the New Testament in Romans where Paul is saying, don't you remember the story of of Elijah and how he felt like he was in hiding, running for his life, felt like he was fixing to be killed and and God would have no one else on the face of the earth to worship and obey him because Elijah felt so alone. And God. And here Paul is saying, don't you remember what God said to Elijah when he said that prayer? 
He said, Elijah, not to worry. I have reserved 7,000 men who have not worshipped an idol for myself. And, and that is a, the remnant. And that are, those were enough people to preserve the faith and to keep going. So when we look at the number 7 here in verse 4 of Revelation where it says, John to the seven churches... Yes, there were literally seven churches. He named them off. But there were a whole lot more churches than seven in existence at that time. All right? He picked, God picked seven and only seven. He picked those particular seven churches with their particular characteristics to represent, I believe, the complete work of God. Okay? Taking the interpretation from how the number seven is used everywhere else in scripture, it raises a flag to me when I see the word seven used in prophecy. It needs to tell me that this represents a wholeness, a completion, as we say in Texas, the whole enchilada. Okay? And from this, I feel very comfortable with the interpretations that people say these seven churches are meant to represent all churches everywhere and in all ages. Okay. You don't have to agree with me. I'm just show, by showing you this, all these other scriptures, I'm showing you the basis for what I think. Okay. You can make up your mind. It's not going to matter. As you go through Re- Revelation, you're still going to understand it. Either way, you choose to interpret this. One last thing about the number seven. If you look at the literal Hebrew meaning of the word seven... It means the one that is sacred and full. That is the literal meaning of the word. Let's talk about the authorship of this book. If we continue in verse 4 of Revelation and and on into verse 5, I don't know why they break up sentences into two verses, but it's all one sentence. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. From this, we can see we're in verses uh, four and five that the author is the Trinity. First off, you got the father, him who is, who was, And it says who is to come. The literal translation would be who is coming. He is coming. It's not like, it's kind of like you can see him. (laughs) You know, it's not, not like it's hidden. We can see him coming. Are we, we always think of Jesus coming a second time. Do we, do we think of God coming? Are we, are we ready to meet the living God? The, The next thing that we know about God from this verse it's, it's God the Father who is on his throne. And I have a real quick little handout for you on thrones because it's important. We're going to see some thrones in, in Revelation and we need to understand what thrones mean in this context. The first grouping of verses for you are from Psalms, from Daniel, and from Matthew. And in each of these, psalm, in each of these verses, you will see that thrones are associated with judgment. And that there's more than one throne. There are many thrones. Look down at the verse in, in, in uh, the middle of that box to Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 and 10. This is part of a vision that Daniel had. 
And he said, I kept looking until thrones, plural, were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. The court sat and the books were opened. And if you go on to read the rest of, of what happened, the uh, Antichrist is judged at, at that point. In Matthew 19, verse 28 and 29, Jesus said, In the regeneration, when the Son of Man, that's him, will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There are more than one throne, and they are involved in judgment. And isn't it interesting that he referred to 12 thrones. This was, he was speaking to a group of disciples that included Judas Iscariot. Now, I'm not suggesting that Judas is going to sit in judgment. But it did make me go and look a little further. And I, I went to the verse in Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 23, after Judas has betrayed Christ, there was a, a vacancy, if you will, in the twelve. And they met, they, they prayed, and they chose a, another disciple named Matthias. And, and in that verse, it said Matthias was selected to fill a position of ministry and apostleship. So to me, what that's saying is those twelve thrones were not attached to the individual men, but they were offices. Okay, and and uh, I would assume that Matthias is going to occupy that twelfth throne. Kind of interesting information. The other thing that's obvious, probably to all of us who've read the Bible, is God's throne is in heaven. I've given you a couple of references here, but that's where God the Father establishes His throne. We the third box talks about how God sits on His throne now and forever, and the last box talks about the fact that the Jesus throne is the throne of David and Jesus will sit on the throne of David in the future and will reign forever okay and we're going to learn just a ton about that as we go through Revelation so then you know God the Father Jesus that's easy what's this stuff in the middle here about the seven spirits that are before his throne what does that mean that is very confusing I, I just intuitively, it makes sense that it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? But where do we see the Holy Spirit referred to as seven spirits? I thought we were, I thought we were talking about a trinity here. You know, don't scare me now, okay? So this is a great place to start back and look at Scripture because if this seven spirits is important enough to be sitting before the throne of God we would expect to find it talked about many places in scripture one of the things I probably should have put on that um, rules of interpretation that I didn't was that if you only find it one place in scripture in one rinky dink verse somewhere and you're hanging your hat on that you're probably missing the boat okay you're probably misinterpreting if an interpretation is an interpretation of a truth you will find God speaks that truth to us throughout scripture scripture is a fabric with threads running through it and so when I see something confusing like the seven spirits I go back and pull on that thread a little see where it leads me so here is a place where I've gone through and pulled the thread to find out 
what seven spirits might mean in scripture. Now, I had a head start because a whole lot of other people have tried to do this before me. And the place that most of them will point you is Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2. That's this very first one here. It is a messianic prophecy. It is widely recognized by Jews and by Christians that this is a prophecy of the Messiah. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Stem of Jesse was David's father. Okay. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, if you count those, I think I bolded them on on there for you. The spirit of the Lord, they count as one. Wisdom, two. Understanding, three. Counsel, four. Strength, five. Knowledge, six. Fear of the Lord, seven. And they will tell you these are the seven spirits of the Lord. Now... This next part I'm going to talk to you about is a place where words may fail me. I'm trying to express to you a, a very what I perceive in my spirit as a very great truth. And the English language just is giving me heck <laughs> trying to express this to you. These things, if you just read the plain English of this verse, the way it reads, they sound like aspects of a single spirit, right? They sound like aspects of the spirit that comes to rest on Jesus, that fills Jesus. That makes sense to me. However, when you look at the very last one, it's the fear of the Lord. If this is the Holy Spirit, how can he have a fear of himself? You know, it it starts to get confusing. And what the word, if you look up the Hebrew word, it's, it's yirah, and it means reverence. It can also mean afraid, but in the context it's used, it's, it's more of a reverence, an awe. And, and I do truly believe that it is not inconsistent for the Lord himself to encompass reverence and awe of himself within himself, you know? If you read in Ezekiel, um, you will see um, passages about the throne of God and about almost like lightning flashing inside of it from member to member within, within this throne. This is the kind of living, dynamic, give and take, worship and, and reverence that I believe does exist in within the Trinity. And it is from the Holy Spirit that we learn this. He imparts this to us. We cannot manufacture worship. We are worthless. We have nothing to offer the Lord. But through the Spirit, in in the New Testament, I know you know where it says, the Spirit searches the interior of man and he searches the interior of God. And the spirit in us can express things that we cannot express in our humanity. Okay. I want you, I'm going to go out of order in this little handout. Turn to the second page. Second box, the box on Isaiah 33, verse 5. And this is another place in scripture that I, that I think will help illumine this for you. The Lord is exalted. For he dwells on high. 
He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. The fear of the Lord is whose treasure? Who is this talking about? It's talking about the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the Lord's treasure. If you go back and really look at that, that's what that's saying. The fear of the Lord is his gift. It is a pearl of great price. If we go back to the first page, that first box, the last line in that box says Jesus, out of all of these aspects of the spirit of the Lord, all the seven aspects, what is the one that he delights in? He delights in the fear of the Lord. That is where holiness and purity and worship live. Now, I would not expect these seven aspects of the Holy Spirit to just stand alone in one verse of the Bible. If they are indeed seven aspects of the Holy Spirit, I would expect to find them grouped throughout Scripture, referred to together as a wholeness. And that's what I've put in here for you. This, by the way, is not an exhausted list. I didn't have enough paper to give you an exhausted list of everywhere these are found together. I have bolded for you places throughout these scriptures where it uses these aspects of the Spirit in conjunction. The first one, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To depart from evil is understanding. The psalm, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding Proverbs, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Look at the big box in the middle, Proverbs 2. Make your ear attentive to wisdom, understanding, discernment, understanding. If you seek for her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. There again, the fear of the Lord is linked with treasure. And I also want to point out to you, it's linked with the feminine. The spirit... And wisdom and the fear of all of these aspects, as you read about them in the Bible, for some reason they are referred to in the feminine. This is where you can begin to see that God himself encompasses both the male and the female. He made us both and he is both. Discover the knowledge of God. The Lord gives wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. The next proverb, you see wisdom and prudence. The word prudence is, also, is the word that is also translated counsel. Okay, so those are the same, same, same thing. Fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Counsel is mine. Wisdom, understanding, power. Fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Leads to life. Now go to, skip the verse that's at the top and go to those Zechariah verses in, on the second page. This is a prophecy, so it is another symbolic place, kind of like Revelation. During, it's, it's happening while the temple is being rebuilt, after the uh, Jews have been allowed to return from exile in Babylon. And if you look down kind of in verse 9 of Zechariah, it says, For behold, this is God talking, For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, we have done a study in an earlier class, so you're just going to have to take, take it on faith. And if you want the handout, you can go to the web or I can give it to you. A stone in Scripture is almost 
always, like 99% of the time, referring to Jesus Christ. The other 1%, it's God the Father. <laughs> okay. A stone is Jesus Christ. And in this context, it is Jesus Christ. So on Jesus, in, on Jesus are seven eyes. Well, we know the Spirit rests on Jesus. We just read that in Isaiah. And so that shouldn't be hard for us to interpret right here. But here, this is a place where that seven is referred to. But it says eyes. It doesn't say spirit. Well, we need to look a little further in the interpretation of this prophecy. Almost always in the Bible, you'll get a prophecy and you'll get an interpretation. The interpretation is in the next chapter, which is Zechariah 4. And look down kind of in the middle where I've got it bolded in verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. These seven, referring to the seven eyes as well as there were some other sevens in this prophecy, will be glad when they see the plumb line. Okay, so it's referring to the seven eyes. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. So there we see the seven eyes that rest on Jesus. The Spirit are the Spirit because it's by the Spirit that this, this prophecy is going to be accomplished. And they are, these eyes literally run. The word that, that says rove, is in, the literal meaning of that word is run. They run to and fro throughout the, the world. Well, that, again, that, we know that to be the Spirit that is running to and fro throughout the earth. And at the bottom... For your personal meditation later, I've pulled out some scriptures that refer to the eyes of the Lord. Now that you know that the eyes of the Lord are indeed the Holy Spirit, it can be very eye-opening, forgive the pun, to, to read scriptures that refer to the eyes of the Lord and substitute the Spirit. And see if it doesn't give you just a new appreciation for those scriptures. Now, this is pretty much a lot. This is kind of deep stuff. So, it's a lot to try to take you in, sitting in a class. If you, if you have time to pray and meditate on it, this would be a good handout to look at during the week. And make sure it sits well with your spirit. Okay? We're, we've got about five more minutes. I don't know that I really want to start the next topic because the next one is Jesus. Okay, we've gone through the Father, the Son, and we're going to talk about Jesus. It won't be nearly so hard. We're a lot more familiar with him than we are and comfortable with him than we are with the terminology about the Spirit. But, but there, there are some things we need to look at about Jesus himself as author of this, of this message to us. So why don't we stop there and take prayer requests.